When my time came to be discharged from the army, I felt that my destiny was to be in that land. This was not unconnected with the fact that just about that time I married a very unusual lady, a Danish lady whose name was Lydia Christensen, a little part of whose story, and it's a very remarkable and dramatic story, is related in the book Appointment in Jerusalem, which was mentioned. She had uh, gone out to Palestine before World War II in a very unorthodox way, had begun to care for unwanted children, children mainly without parents, mostly girls, and had ended up as the mother of a children's home. When I married her, in February 1946, not only did I get a wife, but I got eight daughters at the same time, ready-made. An interesting family. Six of my daughters were Jewish, one was Arab, and one was English. You would be surprised, perhaps, to know that I have many Jewish grandchildren. Because by Jewish law, if your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish. I'm very proud of my, all my daughters. My one, the son-in-law, the husband of one of them is here with me tonight. Jim Fry, who happens to be the husband of the Arab daughter. Then, settling in Palestine at that time, I became involved in all the tumultuous events that led up to the birth of the State of Israel. And in many ways, it was a somewhat critical and agonizing period for me. You probably understand that my background, I'm totally British. My whole family were empire builders. If ever there was an empire-building family, it was mine. I've never had a male relative that I've known that wasn't an officer in the British Army and in India. But at this point, I have to acknowledge that I was deeply concerned over what I saw happening in Israel, in Jerusalem. I make this statement as an eyewitness. I became convinced, and I've never changed that conviction, that the administrators of, of British policy in Palestine, that's both the civilian administrators and the military, were doing everything in their power, short of open war, to frustrate the birth of the State of Israel. I make that, I'm, I could advance many examples of what I'm saying. It's not my purpose to do so. I was grieved and shocked as a Britisher. I have to say I think that's one of the most tragic errors of recent British history is the attitude of the British administration. I'm not saying really the British people because I don't believe that the will of the British people at that time was fully expressed by their official representatives in Palestine. I was in Jewish Jerusalem 
with my family the day the State of Israel was born, the 14th of May, 1948. I witnessed firsthand the fighting. Our house was probably just a little over a quarter of a mile from the front line when the war actually broke out. For about six weeks, we lived in the laundry room in the basement. 150 window panes in our house were shattered by bullets. When we came up in the first ceasefire, you can walk on the floor for sliding on spent bullets. But at the same time, when I look back, I view that as one of the greatest privileges of my life, to have witnessed what I consider to be the most significant fulfillment of biblical prophecy since the first century of this era. Isaiah 66 verse 8, a nation born in a day. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Exact description of what took place. A complete nation emerged one day, very tiny, very weak, but complete. I doubt whether such a thing has ever happened at any other period in human history. Wasn't it remarkable that the prophet Isaiah could predict it about 2,600 years before it happened? I have never ceased to believe in logic. It was my favorite field of study as a philosopher. I have to say that I have discovered the Bible is the most logical book in the world. And I suggest to anybody here tonight, if you have never given serious claims, serious consideration to the claims that the Bible makes for itself, you ought to do that. Even when I was a professional philosopher, I came to realize that in view of the impact of the Bible on human history, and not least British history, any person, and particularly a Briton, could not really call himself educated if he was unfamiliar with the Bible. I think that's a, a statement that actually cannot be challenged. Now, let me try to tie together some of the things that are in my mind about my theme the Jews, God's people. For me, the entire history of the Jewish people, insofar as I know it, is one continuing miracle. But the most dramatic thing about that miracle is that all its significant details were predicted in the Bible before they took place. I tell people, Israel or the Jewish people, is the only nation that I know of whose whole history was written in advance. That makes them unique, if nothing else. I've already spoken about their absolutely unique contribution to the Christian faith. I doubt whether I've made, whether you can absorb it until you've had time to get The Jewish people were the founders of the Christian church. Those of you that are in any way familiar with the New Testament, let me ask you just this simple question. What significant non-Jewish person recorded in the New Testament played a significant role in the founding of the Christian church? You tell me a name. 
And most of you would have to sit here for five or ten minutes to think of one. You might tell me Timothy, but Timothy was Jewish. His mother was Jewish, and therefore he had to be circumcised. You could say Luke, the author of the fourth gospel, of the, of the third gospel, and of the book of Acts, but Luke was a proselyte. He had identified himself with the Jewish people. I thought over this question for a long while, and you know the name I came up with? Titus. At least a minor book of the New Testament was called after him. But how many of us would call Titus a major figure in the founding of the Christian church? Do you realize that? Now I'm talking not to Jewish people, though it's probably just as opposite to them. Do you realize that it was Jews that founded the Christian church? Another very interesting thing is this. When the Jewish influence in the church waned, the New Testament record ceased. It's very remarkable. Two extremely significant things happened almost side by side. I doubt whether their significance has yet been appreciated. First of all, the Jewish people, through the events of 70 AD, the Roman War, were for the most part separated from the only land in which they've ever known statehood. Second, the Jewish leadership of the Christian church passed out of their hands. And at the same time, the Bible record virtually ceases. Now, I want to offer a kind of, I won't call it a prediction, I'll call it a thought. We have lived, I personally have lived, and I'm 67 years old, I have lived through the period in which the Jewish people have been regathered in the only land in which they've ever known statehood. And most people, a hundred years ago, would have dismissed that as a ridiculous and inconceivable impossibility. I was reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is probably the world's number one book of human wisdom and knowledge, the edition published in 1911. I was reading an article by a German professor named Nuldeke on the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew, and in it he made a statement to this effect. The possibility that we will ever recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East. And that was published in 1911. I don't know whether you can say a Jewish empire has been established in the Middle East, but the entire history of the Middle East has radically changed, and the state of Israel has come into being. Something that a learned professor dismissed as a ridiculous impossibility in 1911, 37 years later, was a historical fact. History, or historians, record that through the Assyrian and Babylonian empires and their activities in the Middle East, 110 different nations were uprooted and taken into exile because it was their policy to move nations that they considered unreliable from their area to another area closer to their capital. Out of those 110 nations, 
History only records one that returned to its original place. You know which one that was? Israel. That's a remarkable proportion, isn't it? Why did Israel return? I'll give you my simplistic answer, because God said they would. In the days in which most of us have lived, and very few of you are so young that you haven't lived through these days, Jewish people have been gathered back to that land from at least 87 different countries in the world. After being dispersed for 19 centuries or more, for the Jewish community in Iraq went there in 500 B.C., and never returned till 1950. Somebody said, when you were you to an Iraqi Jew, when were you last, when was your family last here? He said, 2,500 years ago. I doubt whether our minds can conceive what a miracle that is. My first wife, as I indicated, was Danish. She said to me more than once, she said, you scattered the Danes amongst all the nations of the world, and she said, a hundred years from now, you wouldn't find a Dane anywhere in the world. And yet the Jewish people have been scattered for 2,000 years, never lost their identity, and be re been regathered back to that country. The 16th chapter of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, the days are coming when the children of Israel will no longer say the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord that gathered us from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had scattered us. Jeremiah is making a very remarkable statement, especially for a Jew, because he's saying a day lies ahead for Israel when the exodus from Egypt will no longer be significant. By contrast, with the second exodus, which will take place from all nations of the earth. That's a remarkable statement for a Jew because for more than 3,000 years, they have never failed to celebrate at the Passover their exodus from Egypt. And yet Jeremiah says there'll come a day when that will seem absolutely insignificant in comparison with the regathering that will take place when I bring them back the second time. In the same context, Jeremiah says this. He says, I will send for many fishes and fish them. Then I will send for many hunters and hunt them from every hill, from every cave and from the holes in the rocks. One of the things that frightens me about the Bible, and I think it's good to be frightened, is that it tells the good and the bad. Again, it was my first wife who was so deeply and intimately identified with the Jewish people in that period of their history, who said to me, the fishers were the Zionists, the hunters were the Nazis. And this describes with complete accuracy a period in Europe before and during the early years of World War II when first the Zionists traveled throughout Europe warning the Jewish people it's not going to get better. 
It's going to get worse. Get out while you can. And I'm afraid many, many Jews, especially in Germany, simply laughed as messengers to scorn. Then, when the fishers had done their work and a fisher draws by a bait toward him, God turned the hunters loose. They drive by fear from behind. This is so vivid to me. In 1966, I was speaking in West Berlin to a German audience. I was speaking about various uh, indications in Scripture that the present age is drawing to its close. And I gave a list of a number of significant events. And amongst them, I mentioned the regathering of Israel. And I turned to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 16. And I got my interpreter, who was interpreting from English into German, to read it. And I understand German. I knew what he was saying. And as I began to unfold that, I realized to a completely, in a completely new way that I was talking to the people from whom the hunters had come. And it's always been my principle, if I'm a guest in any place, not to insult my hosts. And I thought to myself, how can I bring out this truth without insulting the German audience? And I just said this, having pictured the background, I said, you are the people who know best in the world how absolutely true that description is. You have witnessed it firsthand. And there was not one person that could challenge what I said. To me, it was so dramatic a confirmation of the absolute accuracy of Scripture's prophecies. Let me go a little further. Perhaps I should read just one passage from Isaiah, the 11th chapter. It's not my purpose to dwell on this at length. I'm reading from the New International Version, in case anybody wants to know. Start from verse 11. And I, I, I'm not going to give, him, give the background. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Isaiah there speaks about a second regathering, looking beyond the regathering from the Babylonian captivity to a completely different regathering which is from every quarter of the earth's surface and many different countries are specified. Those words have been exactly fulfilled in the last 50 years. Then in the same context says he, the Lord, will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah and we need to remember that the name Judah is the origin of the word Jew. The scattered Jewish people from the four quarters of the earth. What I want to point out in that connection is, and I, I think it's of tremendous significance, is that in the Lord's purposes, the regathering of Israel to their own land is a banner lifted up to the nations. And the word nations, goyim other nations. 
And it's a banner that God intends all nations to give heed to. One thing you'll have to admit is God's banner works. Because living as we do in Israel half the year, it is almost embarrassing that we are never out of the headlines. I don't know how many of you know the International Herald Tribune, but I regard it as one of the best international newspapers. One day I picked up a copy in which every single article on the front page was devoted to Israel. It's almost incredible. Tiny little nation so small you can hardly find room to write the name of it on the map. And indeed some of the Arab states still show a world map without Israel on it. With a population of less than four million. And it's never out of the world's news. The last two months with the events in Lebanon, it's been almost continuous. You think you get used to that, but just imagine there's been a much larger war taking place all this time between Iran and Iraq. Far more people have been killed. You hardly hear about it. There's another war in Somalia. There's been a coup in Kenya. There's a war in Afghanistan. And the news media hardly relate these things to us. You'd think they hardly happen. But what happens in Israel is the focus of world news. You know why? Because it's the Lord's banner. When the Lord says it'll be a certain way, it'll be that way. Now, what is a banner? What is its function? Its first function is to attract attention. Well, that's succeeded. Secondly, a banner usually carries some kind of brief, pithy message. What is the message of regathered Israel from God to the nations, including the British people? I would suggest that it relates to three things I'll touch on briefly. First of all, it relates to God's sovereignty, a word we very seldom hear mentioned in most Christian circles. God's sovereignty means this, in my simple language, God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and he asks no one's permission. That isn't the accepted view of God today. For most people today, God is a kind of convenience or a rubber stamp that they like to place on their personal plans or their national plans. That's a false picture of God. He has the last word. Incidentally, since I've used that phrase, let me say I have a new book coming out going to be published this month, which is entitled The Last Word on the Middle East. And it's God's word, <laughs> not mine. I don't have the last word on the Middle East. I don't have the last word on my own life. God does. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Some people picture the God of the Old Testament as a little tribal God. That's nonsense. The earth is the Lord. The fullness of the world and those who dwell in That was David, 1000 BC. God does what he wants with any part of the earth. And he doesn't ask the permission of the United Nations. <laughs>